I have it from very good sources that there was a Zen teacher today on Sesame Street <laughs> who was teaching, did a bit of rock gardening, gardening, and then he was teaching Oscar the Grouch how to meditate. <laughs> but Oscar didn't like it very much because it made him feel too good. <laughs> Hmm? <laughs> he wasn't doing it right, somebody <laughs> said. <laughs> hmm. Last week, part of what I spoke of was, uh, at least I read a portion of the passage about spiritual practice as finding a path with heart, awakening the heart in our life, in our spiritual life, in our worldly life, connecting them. Here we come and we sit together, especially those of you that have undertaken some systematic meditation practice as part of your life. And we do this process of meditation, which is really age-old and universal in, in every great culture, in every great civilization and time. There are people who have turned inward to listen, to find a wisdom or an understanding. And the simplicity of this practice that we do and share is timeless in that regard. We sit and we work with the breath to some extent, using the breath as a way to quiet and center, using it in a sense to calm ourselves, to bring the mind and body together. And then once we can feel the breath more fully, using the movement of breath to begin to touch and see nature, to see how the breath as everything within us is constantly changing, to begin to relate directly to our life as a movement or a change. So we quiet and we refine our attention through this very simple act of being aware of the breath. We pay attention in the foundations of mindfulness to the sensations and energies of the body. First of all, to be more in touch with the body, so that we're not living, as it said, some distance from the body, but rather living here in the present, in the reality, to experience ourself as a living organism, a flow of air and earth and fire and water and movement and sensation. It's not like things outside us or are alive, but that's our nature. And in experiencing that movement, ex living in our body more directly, also seeing that we don't possess it, that we can't grasp it or hold it, but rather that we can care for it or understand it. Paying attention to the breath and learning from that, centering, more awake. Paying attention to the body, being in touch with what our body needs, exercise, diet, health, well-being, connection with this living organism that is us.
and then seeing more deeply the changing process of it. Being aware in mindfulness, the foundations of mindfulness, of feelings and of the heart, of this capacity, this extraordinary capacity that we have to feel. To feel the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, and everything in between. And somehow through paying attention to learn to be unafraid or less afraid, to be wise in relationship to all of those things that we touch in our hearts, to discover the sorrow and the joy and to see that the joy contains loss and that the sorrow contains birth and joy. And to learn what it means to feel as a human being. And then awareness of the mind. Paying attention, maybe making mental notes, labels, thinking, planning, judging, remembering, imagining, expecting, hoping, fearing, creating, putting aside, destroying, hating, loving. And we see the fears and the plans and the beautiful things and the creativity, the poetry, the useless talk, the greed and hatred, the clarity, greatness. And it's beginning to understand the movements of mind and how we get caught in stories, how we create all these ideas about things, sometimes which are quite unskillful, which really entangle us. And how to be free in relation to the mind and the breath and the body and the feelings. The purpose of mindfulness, wakefulness, first is a kind of training in itself to live more fully, to understand with our whole body and heart, and in that to find a kind of freedom that's possible for each of us in our life. Now in the Zen tradition, there was someone who went to a famous Zen master and said, please give me the <coughs> essential teachings of all your Buddhist practice, and he wrote down on a paper in front of him the word attention. And the person said, could you elaborate a little bit on that? And so he wrote on a second paper, attention, attention. <laughs> and the person said, please, could you give me a bit more explanation than that? And so, as you can imagine, on the third paper, he wrote attention, attention, attention. To pay attention in this way, to breath, to body, to sounds, to the environment, to the movement of like and dislike in the heart and the mind. To train ourselves to be awake is the whole awakening of the Buddha, is the whole spiritual path. Zen Master Dogen called this practice, this kind of attention, true intimacy. The intimacy that is present to feel, to see, to open to, to know what's here. I remember hearing this teaching about intimacy from Maizumi Roshi, who's a Zen master from Los Angeles, and he was visiting Naropa Institute, where I was teaching a Buddhist university in Colorado during one of the years in the mid-70s, and he had a very big class. There was at least a 1,000 or 1,500 students, 
And the night he was giving the teaching on intimacy, he was quite drunk, which was somewhat fashionable at that particular Buddhist institution. Um, drinking sake and sitting up there and talking about Dogen's teachings on intimacy. And he kept challenging the audience and he said, somebody, what did he mean by intimacy? And he would take another drink, like someone at a bar or something like that. And people stood up and they said all their various ideas about intimacy and he would say no, no and have another drink or whatever. So, smart ass that I am in a way, I said, decided, all right, I'll I'll try it. And it was actually one of my best moments with Zen masters. I've had a lot of really bad ones, but... <laughs> in this case, I walked, I was sitting in the back of the room and I got a little nervous, but anyway, I walked all the way down the, the center aisle and everybody looked at me. I wasn't just going to stand up and give some answer. And I got up on the stage, walked up on the stage, walked right over to where he was, looked him in the eye, said, intimacy, and picked up his glass of sake and took a big drink <laughs> and said, it tastes very good, thank you, and put it down, thank you for sharing, and went back to my seat. <laughs> was good sake. <laughs> so Zen Master Dogen said that to be mindful, to be awake, to pay attention, is the same as intimacy. Intimacy with your lover or your friends or the sky and the trees, the drought, the grasses your neighbors, the rhythms of the seasons, your children or parents. A friend of mine who is, uh, who is a poet and also a, a Zen teacher in the, in the Bay Area um, goes into the Mill Valley schools to teach poetry to the fourth graders and they do a series of exercises and he's a very good teacher and I want to read you a couple of poems from his fourth grade students. This is called The Snow Keeps Falling by Jessica W. of Miss Mars Marsden's fourth grade class. The snow keeps falling when you are young. Growing up goes as slow as a lazy person. The snow keeps falling when you are old. Growing up goes as fast as someone in a hurry. The snow keeps falling, the cars on the road are going as fast as bullets, but some days as slow as a minute going by when you are sad. Good for fourth grade, huh? <laughs> One more, if I may. To be intimate means somehow to feel the rhythms, the textures, the, the liveliness of each day or each contact with each person of our life. It's a kind of a mystery. This is a poem called The Wolf by Andre Hogg, grade four from Mrs. Ibanez's class, Mill Valley. Oh, great wolf, how do you run? Do you run because it's fun? And when you pounce like a lion on animals that are dying, I see your gripping claws of steel. 
Wolf, wolf, why do you fight when you run on through the night? Does a lamb walk in your path? And I am sure, like me, that you hate math. <laughs> oh, are you swifter than a lion and swifter than a breeze? Can you jump higher than a kangaroo? Are you a beast or a work of art? In a way, it's a mystery that there is anything at all. Not to speak of the fact that there are elephants and dinosaurs, or there were, and cows and armadillos and beetles and dolphins and whales and vultures and babies. It's a mystery that all of this exists. And we forget it as we get busy. I'm sure you know that. It's a mystery that things are born out of nothing. The first thing you learn in life is you're a fool. The last thing you learn is you're the same fool. <laughs> That's from Ray Bradbury, the author. Also says, sometimes I think I understand everything. Then I regain consciousness. <laughs> To live in the mystery of things is what it means to pay attention. Each moment is something new. Nature is saying, here, try this new moment, unlike any moment you ever had before. Here's a new one for you. And to touch any one thing intimately is to touch all things. It's all there in every single thing. It's the heart of ecology. There's a friend of mine and a few people here who died recently of cancer. She had a very long saga with cancer and did all kinds of healing of herself over a number of years um, and learned a great deal. And it was more than anything, even though her body finally dialed, died, it was a kind of a spiritual odyssey. And she grew in some extraordinary and beautiful ways over the years that she was, quote, dying. She was incredibly alive. And she wrote, I had long periods at first when I felt incredibly shaky, crying a lot, very agitated, close to falling apart, dwelling on the fears of pain and the thoughts of death. And then, unbidden, would come thoughts of all who are suffering on this planet at this moment, of all who have suffered in the past. And I would immediately feel a wave of peace and calm pass through me. I no longer felt alone. I no longer felt singled out. Instead, I felt an incredible connection with all of these people, like we were part of the same huge family. very moving to enter into one thing in a very personal and immediate way, not with your mind but with your whole being, is to touch everything. 
You know Carol Boss, who sits with us? She usually sits up here. She's a friend of many of you, and she gave a talk just a few weeks ago. She's not coming on Monday evenings now much because she's a bit sicker and weaker with her cancer. And She said she might, this might be her last spiral for a while. She's not sure. And I love her a lot. I think she's a very beautiful and courageous person. And I've learned a lot from her. She came to a retreat in Yucca Valley, one of the earlier retreats she sat seven, eight years ago or more. And she was very sick with cancer then. I was sure she was going to die as soon as the retreat was over. But she didn't at all, in fact. She's been very alive. Normally, we tend to armor ourselves in our life to make shells around us, to insulate ourselves. We live insulated. It's a bit like having styrofoam packing around us. We do. And our culture is an insulated one. We drive big cars and we live in big insulated houses, often one person in their own room. Or we insulate ourselves through all the addictions that we've spoken of here. Addictions to drugs and alcohol and workahol and sex and busyness and consumerism and all kinds of things to not touch and feel so deeply. There's a passage by Rilke, the German poet. He was complaining, and this was 60 years ago, about the process of insulation in Europe. He said, even for our grandparents, a house, a well, a familiar building, their very clothes, their coat, were infinitely more intimate. Almost everything, a vessel in which they found the human and added to the store of life. Now, from technological cultures, empty, indifferent things are pouring out. A sham of things, kind of a dummy life. A house or a tree or that's been planted in the landscape around it has nothing in common with a true house or, or fruit or clothes that were woven by our hands, that were traded for our labors. Live things are running out in our time and cannot be replaced by something outward, but only by some connection with our inner being. And it's easy to see this process of insulation, even in small ways. You go out and there's this beautiful sunset for, for you to see, and maybe even you notice it, which is wonderful, but not, not for too long. Then, you know, you have other things to do. You, you can give yourself two minutes or five minutes to see it. Then we have to get busy again. Like it's almost too much to stay with it. Or you surrender in lovemaking and then notice afterward the plans you're making while you're lying there thinking about other things you'll do. Or we let go in skiing or in meditation and then after a little while think about how good we're doing and somehow try to possess it and make it something that we can hold and enlarge and make more of ours to keep. 
even with our partners or our children, people that we're so close to, there's this insulation often. I know it at times, being with my daughter, it's so amazing when you're with children because the distance is so apparent, because they're so present that you kind of feel it when you're there and when you're not, when you're trying to do something else really than be there. And generally we create this out of our fear, a fear of being hurt or of loss because we've been hurt and we've had our losses. And so we deaden ourselves, our fear of dying. Because if we were to touch something really intimately, to be there very close with that flower, or the sunset, or the child, or the work, or whatever, we would also feel the impermanence and death of it, as well as its beauty. You can't touch something without feeling how temporal it is. And we don't want to feel that, so we kind of deaden ourselves in advance, which is really a much worse kind of death. We make this shell or armor, and we make it out of our mind, all our ideas and busyness and plans and all of those things. You can watch it in your meditation or in your life. Or we make it in our body through attention and holding, a kind of armoring again, the boundaries. Of course, those protections have a place in some way, perhaps. But fundamentally, they're false. They're created out of this illusion that we're separate, as if we really were separate. One of the things that I've struggled with in my own life, not just my spiritual life, but my life in general, has been loneliness. I think maybe that's why I'm a twin. I have a twin brother. I figure I picked a womb where there was somebody else in it just for company or something <laughs> like that. But it's been the thing that's been very hard for me. For some others, it's some, you know, for some it's fear. I've had my fear, but loneliness has been worse. Or for others, it's rage and anger. I've had that too, but loneliness has been worse. Very deep, and I work with it. I got married in part so I wouldn't feel lonely, and then there was that amazing moment sitting in the living room with my wife and feeling very lonely, you know? It didn't cure it. Still lonely. And then as I learned to see it and to work with it, which meant just to be lonely, to feel the loneliness in my body and in the cells of it and the fear that it brought up in my mind. And somehow to be intimate with it, that's that kind of awareness. To talk about it, to share it, to make it a part of what was truly there, which it was. Something new opened up for me out of that, very different. Of course we're all alone in some way, but that's different than loneliness. some new way of making a different kind of contact that didn't come out of fearing and running away. Let me ask you a few questions, if I may. Where are you, or we, I'll ask it to myself as well, where are we the most intimate in our lives? Where do we really let the barriers down? 
what times and places. And where have we most failed to be intimate? Where is the biggest styrofoam packing, the most fear? Just think about it. Where would we wish to be more intimate? Where would we wish that we could really be there, be present, be awake? And what prevents that? What's the fear? And what would support our growing in wakefulness, in mindfulness, in true intimacy? What would make that difference in our life? meditation is teaching the art of appreciation which we've lost the appreciation of whatever's in front of us what's the lesson in it what's its texture its smell how does it change how does it get born and die and how to touch what's here in our life with our heart with our eyes open and with a, a fullness and a tenderness a living quality As we sit or practice in whatever way we do, which is to pay attention or to listen, and feel the armor and the distance between ourselves and each moment that we're afraid, perhaps we can also sense inside a great emptiness. Just like there's all this space and filled with things outside us, it's the same inside, this, the great emptiness in us, all this tremendous space that is within us, is filled with the same richness and life and creativity that we seek outside. They're actually the same. If you look deeply under that barrier and armoring, it's filled with stuff, beautiful things. The insulation is our fear, and it's really an illusion. We're not separate. What's deep in us and outside, they're exactly the same thing. They come together. And that's not just some philosophy, but it's an experience when we become still enough to feel and sense and listen inside. It means to be able to see things as they are, being born, dying, painful, beautiful, happy, sad, 
Both the rose and the thorn appear together in spring, says Rumi, and the wine of the grape is not without its headaches. Do not be an impatient bystander on this path. By God, there is no death worse than expectancy, waiting for something else rather than being here. Set your heart on hard cash, not counterfeit, and listen to my advice. Let go of your worries and ambitions, your fears, and be completely clear-hearted like the face of a mirror. When it is empty of all forms, it can contain each form that arises. The rose and the thorn appear together in spring, and the wine of the grape is not without its headaches. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have a drink now and then. Really speaks of practice. To pay attention is to sense what we already know somewhere deep in ourselves, a kind of wisdom of what our life really is, which is this changing mystery, one day after another, one connection with a person, with a moment in nature, with a triumph, with a disappointment. One mistake after another, as some Zen master said. We're the center of the world. Each of us is the center of the world. And we create its future out of our heart. We can create nuclear war and fear and separation. Or we can work on the ecological disasters of the world. The oceans and the rainforests by letting ourselves see what is here. What I'm talking about, or what Dogen talked about, or the Buddha talked about, is very, very simple. The Buddha absolutely believed his eyes and his ears. He saw just as it was each moment. Saw it and allowed his heart to be open, the heart of compassion. So to practice is to awaken, or to be intimate, to care for one moment after another, and to find in that a responsibility, and a joy, and a delight, and a freedom, and all the terrible things and the wonderful things that it is to be alive, and to find the lessons in things, and a strength even in the great difficulties. I was reading a piece about one of the rallies on Martin Luther King's birthday in New York at a big cathedral. And it described in one point a speech that he gave at one of the hardest times of his own life. He was in Montgomery and there had been some bombings and some people had died and people were being beaten and it was a very, very difficult circumstance and he was trying to give people some sense of encouragement and willingness to go on and not to be violent or reactive in violence. And he talked about what a hard time he was having in it. And he said, something said to me, he was now in Montgomery, I'd like to call my father. 
who was a minister and an inspiration to him. But he's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. And I can't call on my mother. We've got to call on something. Something my father used to tell me about. A power. That power that can make a way out of no way. Anyway, <clears throat> I'm pleased that we can sit together and pay attention and feel whatever we feel and listen. And maybe out of it, our own lives get changed and the world around us does, even if Oscar the Grouch finds it <laughs> not to his liking. That's all I have to say this evening, but I said last week that I would make time and half for mm -hmm. questions or comments or discussion. I'd be particularly interested to hear, since I asked you a series of questions, where you're the most... Oh, that's nice. Hmm. wonder where that came from. <laughs> hmm where you find yourself the most intimate or awake or alive and perhaps where the least so and what causes that. Please. For me, it's when I'm not ready to fall asleep. Hmm. Because if I don't totally relax and let go of all the thoughts in my head, I, I can't fall asleep. Huh. It's kind of strange to be more most awake when you're getting ready to fall asleep. Uh-huh. You might try it in some other part of the day. <laughs> it's true, though. There is a, it, the, the time of falling asleep is a very interesting time. Um, and one of, the, uh, one of the most interesting sets of experiences that you can have on a meditation retreat is to have done five or ten in a ten-day retreat or longer days of intensive attention, sitting and walking and being as mindful as you can, and then lie down and fall asleep and discover at some point that you are not only awake as you start to fall asleep, but you can even be awake when you fall asleep, that there's a kind of lucid dreaming state that appears for some people. And you see the dreams appear just like we're talking now, and all of a sudden you get the sense that maybe it's all created in that way. It's quite extraordinary. For anyone else, when do you find yourself really present? Please. Um, in nature. In nature. It's, it's always that way because nature, I, I feel like I'm allowed to be with, with people, I'm, I'm much less afraid because I feel there's always those judgments coming up from fear of judgment to fear of rejection and on the personal period of the world. 
So in nature, you're allowed to be that way, which is very beautiful, and it's, um, it's, it's really important, I think, for us as humans on this planet to spend our time away from houses and roads in nature. The Buddha did. He didn't go and live in Delhi or Calcutta. He lived out in the woods, and he suggested it to people. He said, it's really nice out here. Come and try it. But also, you said, in nature, there... What did you say? There's nothing... No judgments. No expectations. Now, in a way, see if you can do this for a moment. Look around here. This is nature, too. Okay? Imagine that it's the zoo, okay? (laughs) And that there are a hundred or so quite strange animals in here. But it's really the zoo, so it's okay. It doesn't really matter what they think. And look at it. See if you can see humanity as a part of nature with that same kind of strange appreciation. You might find it to be fun. might help a little. Anyone else, please? When traveling, where do you travel? Wherever. Other cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it helps. It helps to step out of your culture, other languages, and things. All of a sudden, you you find yourself more present. That sounds very deep. Thank you. Please. The last few years, I've, I've reached out toward my mother, who's quite elderly, and that has been for me a very intimate experience. Thank you. When playing music. I can feel really intimate with people, too. Intimate with people who are there as well. It seems kind of strange, though, that sometimes if I stop, I just completely remove from everyone. Mm -hmm. So this variety of things in nature, in taking care of one's mother, in a very intense interaction with your partner or lover when you hurt them and then you feel the hurt and the compassion. When you speak and your words are connected with what's true for you at that time in playing music. Then where were the places that you were wishing that you could be more intimate? That you wish that you could be more present? 
What was that for you? Anybody? That's a little more risky to share, huh? <laughs> In social situation. Mm. With myself and my feelings. With yourself and your feelings. When I'm trying too hard. When you're trying too hard. When somebody has an expectation of me that I don't feel that I want to fulfill, and that I also don't feel confident in um, verbally limiting. So particularly that Mm -hmm. So when your mother or some has an expectation of you and you don't want to do it, but you don't know how to react or what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Better than when you're just getting up after you've meditated, anyway. <laughs> She, pro she may do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult because the patterns of conditioning are so powerful between us. And the fears and hurts, the, some of the places where we most wish to be intimate, we're also the most vulnerable. And so our fears of being hurt are right there as well. Very difficult. Anyone else where you would like to? For me, it's, it's with my daughter at certain times when I'm, I'm trying to do two things at once. As, as parents generally have to learn to do two or three things at once. And I really want to make sure that every day there's a period of time that we spend that's just there. Eating. Yeah. It's a good one. And one more question to you. What was the fear? What made it so difficult? Anyone notice? To be there. What kinds of fears? Burr? Fear of discomfort, fear of unpleasantness. Somebody mentioned fear of rejection at one point. Fear of not being good enough. Fear of not being good enough. Mm. Fear of having it taken away. Fear of having it taken away, of loss, when you get close to something. Fear of the intensity. There's a kind of dying in that intensity or living. They're, they're, they're the same almost. Please. Fear of intruding. Fear of intruding and causing disruption or harm or I guess it comes back to rejection, but the 
idea of intruding in somebody's space with intimacy where they might be themselves threatened or annoyed. And then you might be rejected as a result of it. Uh huh. Fear of wanting or needing. Fear of the unknown. Fearing loss of freedom. Fearing loss of freedom if you really become intimate or close. That you'd lose your freedom, or perhaps in some way you'd lose yourself. All these different kinds of, it's sort of a catalog of human fears, isn't it? (laughs) It's interesting. Hmm. Yet, I think in the end they're really pretty simple ones. They're, They're fear of some kind of loss or fear of being hurt in some way. And of course, to open, you risk that. It's worth it. <laughs> More than that, it's worth it, I and mean, that's very flippant and glib. I think that there's an art that we learn in meditation or just in maturing in our life or in our spiritual life, that there's an art that we can learn of how to be with things in a more intimate and full way with less reactiveness, with less fear, with more of our kindness. And it's really part of the, the development or the growth or the maturing that comes through meditation practice and spiritual life. Is that art of being in those places where we've been afraid and feeling the fear and the letting that fear be okay and taking another step anyway, paying attention more fully, engaging or letting ourselves see or know, or touch anyway. And finding, through some practice, how to do it with less reactivity and less distance. It's a wonderful thing to learn. And in a way, it's the art of living meditation more than just sitting in meditation. For some reason, I've been spared in my life being terribly idealistic. I have lots of other problems, but idealism has never been a strong issue for me. I don't know. I've always been a little bit skeptical and not imagining some fancy, enlightened, wonderful state that I was going to get to and live in forever and ever, like spiritual Disneyland or something like that. Um, and it's it's helped a lot, actually, because the people that I know that are very idealistic in spiritual practice, although initially it gives a lot of energy, often suffer a great deal from it because their lives never seem to measure up to the fantasy of things. And I was always looking for confirmation in the 
teachers and places I practiced that it wasn't some fanciful ideal thing. I remember going for a, a drive at one time with my teacher Ajahn Chah, and we had, I mean, the, the drivers in Asia, I and mean, India is probably the worst, whatever, but um, are not uh, neither courteous nor safe, to say the least. Um, and at times it's a- actual madness to even enter a vehicle. Um, and we were in one of those more <coughs> crazed situations, and this driver was leaning on the horn and passing things where you could see nothing. And I was pretty white-knuckled. I was a monk in my robes in this car. We were going to visit this distant temple, kind of breathing and figuring, well, this may be the way that I die, but I guess that's what monks are supposed to do. I'll just breathe. And, and then I looked over at Ajahn Chah, and his hands were real tight on the <laughs> seat as well, and I went, oh, good. And he said at the end, he said, that was scary, wasn't it? (laughs) It was wonderful. I mean, it was just scary. That was okay. So when I talk about being aware or being intimate, it's not that some special thing is supposed to happen in our life but it's really being with the people around us and the feelings within us and the nature of our body when it's well, when we feel happy, when we're in love, when we're sick, when we have some disease, when we're uh, struggling or sad as well. And there's a strength in the directness of that experience. What was that phrase from Martin Luther King? The power that can make a way out of no way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.